0: Two and a Half Admins, episode 149. I'm Joe. I'm Jim. And I'm Alan. And here we are again. Clearly predatory.
1: Western Digital sparks panic and anger for age-shaming hard disks. So obviously this is not Western Digital's first pissing off the customer's rodeo. And uh, in this particular case, the issue is that they have implemented a new service called WDDA, which is essentially their own smart Clone, I guess, is the best way to describe that in a nutshell. And if you're monitoring the WDDA aspects of a Western Digital Drive, it will throw up a warning once the drive has been powered on for three years. That's just warning you, hey, this drive's been powered on for three years. And it would be easy to say, oh, well, okay, you know, if that doesn't strike you as a problem, you can just ignore that. But the big problem is that the only people who are looking at these statistics are using monitoring systems or NAS devices with built-in monitoring systems that treat that as a warning. And a warning is the kind of thing that you normally associate with, hey, a drive dropped out of my array, or hey, this drive is about to fall over dead, and you need to replace it now. So given that most people will expect to get five to seven year lifespans pretty conservatively out of NAS grade hard drives, Having all of them, you know, throw up the same kind of warning they would if they were about to fall over dead next week at the three-year mark, that's kind of problematic.
2: This isn't just a warning that your drive is now out of warranty. It's literally like, no, you should replace it right now. And that's really not the right message to give people in a lot of places. And it just seems like a blatant grab to get people to buy new hard drives. And one of the reasons
1: this has come to the forefront so quickly... Might be pretty easy to think, well, if this is only hitting people who are, you know, actively monitoring like smart attributes of their drives, you're talking about much more technical users, it's not going to be that many of them, yada, yada, yada. The problem here is Synology DSM disk stations are, to the best of my knowledge, by far the most popular NAS model out there. And Synology DSMs automatically monitor WDDA attributes, So, once the three year mark hit on the first drives that had this firmware that would report a warning after three years of power on, all of a sudden, it's like a Star Wars joke, man. You know, WDDA cried out and it's a million voices (laughs) erupted in panic. Yeah. Like, you got to think
2: these appliances are being bought, especially by the less sophisticated users that aren't building their own NAS. They're buying a NAS off the shelf. And this is going in like school boards and things like that. And then, as soon as they get this warning, oh no, we might lose all our data. We better buy new hard drives. And I'm sure the Synology was like, holy shit, our support line is just completely overrun with people going crazy about this. Western Digital also won't even give us a list of which drives have this and which don't. Synology has compiled a bit of a list and it includes things like the Western Digital Red Pro and the Western Digital Plus. It's like, these are definitely not the drives that you expect people who don't know what they're doing to be using, right? It's not the WD Purple or whatever. So it really seems that they're, specifically targeting NAS users.
1: No, no, no. Some of the WD Purple's have it too.
2: Well, yeah. No, I, I like the WD Purple, I might expect it to have this. Gotcha. But when they put it in the Pro,
1: it's like the Pro, I it should be able to tell if it's in good shape or not, right? Me personally, at least, when I first heard this story, I'm imagining somebody with a Synology disk station that throws a warning about a drive and that makes them nervous that they got this warning from this one drive. But most of the people encountering this What they're actually going to see is their disk station telling them every single drive in the box through a warning. And, you know, oh, my God, you know, because most likely they bought all those drives at the same time, the same model. And they're all going to throw that freaking flag on, you know, if not the same day, probably the same week. Yeah.
2: And they're going to have been powered on for mostly the same amount of time. And this just brings up a new risk for me. If somebody tries to replace all of them at once they'll find out that they don't have any data anymore. Hmm. Because they're all going off, You know, I don't know what RAID levels synologies are using, but it probably can't replace more than one drive at a time usually. And so it's a whole process to get rid of these warnings and you're going to see a lot of people do it just because they don't know better. Not that I'm saying that you should try to run your hard drives until they're nine years old and, and die, but triggering this for drives as soon as they hit three years of power on time seems really excessive. Even the paranoid customers that... Are proactively replacing disks because they're too old. Are not doing it like the second the power-on hours ticks over to the warranty period. Something else to
0: consider is something a Synology spokesperson said to us Technica, and that was only drives with a healthy status can be used to repair or expand a storage pool.
1: Yeah, that's a great point, Joe. I'm I'm glad you brought that up. Um, that is absolutely something worth realizing. So if you've got a Synology Disk Station, you cannot put a three-year-old drive in perfectly good health if it's one of these you know, WD Reds or Purples. You can't use that to replace a failed drive or to grow an existing array because since that drive shows up with a warning on it, you know, the Synology is going to say, no, you shouldn't do that. That's not safe.
0: Well, the spokesperson did continue. Users will need to first suppress the warning or disable WDDA to continue. So it is possible, but by default, it isn't at least.
1: Yeah, and if you're a normal NAS user who's just trying to do their best and muddle their way through this stuff, disabling WDDA is not going to look like a real great idea. I mean, that sounds pretty scary. Like, oh, I have to disable all of my disk monitoring in order to use this disk? That doesn't sound like a great idea on the surface.
2: Mm. But yeah, when your storage vendor says, because the warning is triggered by a fixed power on our count, we don't believe disabling it to be a risk. However, administrators should still pay close attention to their systems, including warnings about IO disruptions or indicators like slower reads or writes are more evident signs of the drive's actual health, which sadly is usually not the thing smart ever reports about.
1: I swear it just, it feels like Western Digital is on a determined mission to keep me buying Seagate for as long as possible.
0: Yeah, because this is not their first rodeo here, is it, when it comes to pissing people off? We had the SMR scandal. That was uh, that was pretty much when we started this show however many years ago. That was the, this huge scandal where their Nails were shipping with SMR.
1: And it's not just about the fact that they shipped it with SMR. It's about the way they communicated. It's just the absolute grudging reluctance to give anybody any valid information, be they end user or be they a tech journalist, as I was at the time. And the difference between talking to Western Digital and talking to Seagate was just beyond night and day.
0: Yeah, like Seagate will ship their barracudas, but you know exactly what you're getting with the barracuda.
1: Well, to be fair, again, you know, Seagate was also guilty of submarining SMR into places. They didn't tell anybody that that's what they were doing with the barracudas. People found out the hard way. But once the whole thing came to light, Seagate was like, yeah, we did that in the consumer stuff, but we didn't do that in the NAS drives. We will never do that in the NAS drives because this is inappropriate for a NAS drive, period. And, you know, we're just very direct with it. And if I wanted to talk to, you know, engineers or product managers or whoever as a reporter for Ars Technic at the time, like Seagate would make that happen. Just absolutely. Here you go. Here's the person to talk to. Whereas with Western Digital, Man, yes, they talked to me. It wasn't as bad as getting an auto-replied poop emoji out of Tesla. (laughs) But honestly, it wasn't much better than that either. With Seagate,
2: it was generally possible to go to the data sheet if you knew what you were looking for and be able to tell if a drive was SMR or not. Whereas Western Digital was actively trying to hide the fact. Yes. And make it difficult for you to purchase the drive you meant to purchase. And they did it on purpose for NAS drives, which is just unforgivable. Okay,
0: this episode is sponsored by the TraceRoute podcast. Find it on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. The TraceRoute podcast is a tech podcast that looks down the stack to find the human layer and features perspectives from some of the most insightful and brilliant technologists of our time. AI developments and their implications have been all over the news recently, with both the tech community and government wondering how we deal with this emerging technology. The two-part season finale of the TraceRoute podcast takes a look at AI ramifications in a way you may never have thought of before. What happens if we use AI to help restore recordings of our past history that are about to crumble to dust? Is the result an accurate representation of our history, or is it somehow corrupted by the very technology used to help save it? This is something I've thought a great deal about, and have even covered on various shows in the past, so it sounds like a really interesting way to end the season. So catch up on all of season two of the TraceRoute podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Just search for the TraceRoute podcast. Phelan from Late Night Linux linked me to JMAP and said that you two might want to talk about it.
1: Yeah, so I actually had not heard of JMAP before Phelan mentioned it to you and and you passed that along. It turns out JMAP is a, a mail access protocol. So you should think of it as a competitor slash potential successor to IMAP, which is the protocol that uh, you know, most people, if they're familiar with it, will be familiar with it as how they read their email, not send it. Prior to IMAP, uh, people used POP3 as the uh, the email reading protocol they connected their mail server with. And now if you're using your own mail client, it will most likely be using IMAP. Of course, in reality, most people aren't using proper email clients at all anymore, You're using Outlook and Office 365, in which case it's doing its own proprietary nonsense. Or you're using Gmail and it's web-based, but still, you know, all the back-end communication is a bunch of proprietary nonsense on down the line. So a company, FastMail, decided that IMAP was no longer really fitting all of its needs. And FastMail had a point. JMAP is to IMAP. You could argue about this comparison, but it strikes me as a lot like the relationship between NVMe and SATA. A lot of the advantage to JMAP is that you can issue massively parallel instructions to the mail server without having to do things one by one by one. One of the issues with IMAP is if you delete a folder that has got tens of thousands of messages in it, your client can very easily end up in a loop where it's literally getting a response back every single time the mail server deletes a single email which is not great for your bandwidth and it's not great for your battery if you're on mobile and it's not great for how long it takes all that stuff to complete. JMAP fixes that and a whole bunch of other issues by allowing you to uh, connect statelessly so that will save you battery if you're on mobile and uh, you know, issue commands that let you do more complex things in much more efficient ways, all of which in theory should have somebody like me just absolutely champing at the bit. Yes, put it in my veins now. Unfortunately, that means that I and like five other people are excited about this thing. So the question is, what is the target market for JMAP as an open protocol? Obviously, FastMail is using it and likes it. And, uh, you know, there's potential for other mail services, say ProtonMail, to upgrade to that because it would be a definite upgrade over IMAP. But almost nobody runs their own mail server anymore. Only maniacs like you, eh? Really only maniacs like me. I don't even know many maniacs like me that bother anymore. I, Alan, do you still run any mail servers? Yes.
2: Uh, personal one and my old company's has its own, but not as many as I used to. Yeah. That makes pretty much one person I know besides myself.
0: Yeah. And anything new you're doing, you're not hosting your own mail server these days.
1: Not likely. The only times that I'm rolling a new mail server these days is if it's part of an application that uses SMTP messaging as part of the stack. And what I want is the more complex application that has a legacy dependency on communicating via SMTP. I still encounter that fairly frequently, but beyond that, no, I I run my own mail server. Honestly, even there, like I do connect to it with IMAP, but that's not even really technically from a standalone client anymore. I've got a web client that talks to it using IMAP on the back end on the same server that is doing the SMTP. So, again, JMAP in theory would be lovely, but I did a little bit more research on it, you know, after I looked at what it was technically and what it promised. And I was like, this looks great. The problem that I see is I don't think there are going to be servers, you know, for me to just like install a server and install a client, expect everything to work really nicely. And when I look at the project page, they have a list of projects that incorporate JMAP right now. And sure enough, there's there's not very much there. The old Cyrus IMAPD apparently supports JMAP now, but Cyrus really, really sucks, which is why I used DoveCot instead of Cyrus for the last, going on like 25 years. And when I started looking for DoveCot support, the project page says that, you know, it, it's, being worked on. But when I looked on the DovCAT developer mailing list, what I found was the original founding developer, Timo, saying, "Yeah, well, we looked at it, but it doesn't seem like anybody really wants it, and it would be a giant pain in the butt to implement." so eh. On their news page, they also mentioned K9 Mail, which is the
2: Android app that I use, but reading the details is like somebody proposed it for Google Summer of Code 2017, And then in 2019, somebody said they were going to work on it for six months. And it's out of the proposal stage now, but I don't actually see anything actually happening with it. So, yeah, the clients, the ones they actually list, there's not much there yet. Like somebody wrote one in Rust as a terminal email client and a couple things like that. On the server side, there is JMAP proxy, which is an MIT licensed Perl app that is a JMAP server and then talks to a regular IMAP server for you. But that sounds like an easy way to. Put JMAP support into your DoveCot or in front of your DoveCot. But unless there's until like Thunderbird supports JMAP as a mail protocol, I don't see why I would want to do that.
1: Yeah. And it it doesn't help me to stick the proxy in between my client, like on my phone in the server, because where I really want the efficient JMAP communication is over that, you know, high latency, low bandwidth internet connection on a device with limited battery power. So if I'm having to do iMap over that, it doesn't help me any to have a nice fast jMap connection happening right there in the data center. Right, but well, so jMap proxy to perl you would run on your dovecot server not on your phone. Yes, that's what I'm saying and it doesn't know. solve my problems no. because that means my phone is still using slow, clunky, you know, stateful iMap to talk over the very long distance you know high latency low bandwidth connection well no your phone would talk jmap to the jmap proxy that's localhost to your DoveCot, right you run the
2: perl on your DoveCot oh, machine okay. and then your phone talks jmap to the perl and then perl talks imap to DoveCot. but you're not going to get the multiplexing because jmap Proxy doesn't have the data until it gets it from IMAP, and it'll still be one message at a
1: time. Well, that would still be useful, though. Yes, I was looking at the proxy in the wrong direction. If that's the direction of the proxying, then uh, yeah, that would still be useful because even if there is still an IMAP server on the back end that's sitting there like a dummy, going, "You deleted this one, you deleted this one, you deleted this one, you deleted this one," at least that's only happening like you know as an inter-process communication on one machine rather than across the internet. So that is still a definite win. It's just that I have to make my email even more of a Rube Goldberg stack to make that happen. And I don't know if that's worth it because it's already Byzantine enough. So in general, this is interesting, but we'd need to see wider adoption on the server
2: side because if DevCod doesn't support it, then I don't care. And that mostly seems to depend on client side support first. But how do you get people excited about adding support for this to the client if there's no servers that support it? <laughs> Okay, this episode is
0: sponsored by TailScale. Go to TailScale.com. TailScale is a VPN service that makes the devices and applications you own accessible anywhere in the world, securely and effortlessly. It enables encrypted point-to-point connections using WireGuard, which means only devices on your private network can communicate with each other. Unlike traditional VPNs, which tunnel all network traffic through a central gateway server, TailScale creates a peer-to-peer mesh network. It handles complex network configuration on your behalf, so you don't have to. Network connections between devices pierce through firewalls and routers as if they weren't there, so there's no need to manually configure port forwarding. Tailscale is available for Linux, Mac, Windows, Raspberry Pi and ARM, Android, iOS, Synology, and for devices that don't allow additional software to be installed, such as printers and other embedded devices, where you can set up a subnet router to act as a gateway, relaying traffic from your TailScale network onto your physical subnet. So go to TailScale.com to try it for free on up to 100 devices. That's TailScale.com. PC games are starting to require SSDs. So we are now finally getting this as a minimum spec for certain games. Not only a storage requirement, but specifically that it has to be SSD and not spinning rust.
2: Which is partly interesting because with games ballooning in size all the time, like was this Starfield here needs 125 gigabytes of space and it has to be SSD. It's kind of interesting.
1: I mean, I can get a 2 terabyte Enterprise SSD for under $300 so that yeah. 120 gigs just doesn't seem like as big a deal anymore. I mean, I remember games that literally acquired half of your conventional hard drive <laughs> in the 90s. Mm-hmm. So I don't have an issue with that. I think the interesting thing about this is that, well, for one thing, you have to wonder, like, who's it for? Have you tried to buy a machine with a Rust hard drive lately? Like, I'm not saying it's impossible, but you really have to work at it. Manufacturers are already delivering consumer machines with SSDs. For the most part, they're not even offering you a Rust disk. Well, usually even NVMe now. But a lot of people still
2: do have a Rust drive to put some of the chunkier stuff on because there is... No matter how big your NVMe or SSD is, only so much space there. And games are bloody huge nowadays.
0: Yeah, and spinning Rust is still significantly cheaper than SSDs terabyte for terabyte. Yeah. Despite the fact that SSDs have come down massively in price recently, and who knows how long that's going to last before they go back up again.
2: I do wonder what some of these games would think of encountering the drive all my Steam games are installed on. Let me guess, Alan. It's a network drive... And it's uh,
0: uh, ButterFS? No, no,
2: ZFS. Right, but it's basically an array of hard drives. So to some degree, it can look like an SSD, but the latency is not all that great because it does go over the network, but it does have a lot more seek capacity and so on than a regular hard drive. So far, I've only encountered like one game that really, really actually wanted to be on my local SSD. And that was mostly to with the fact that it just has huge numbers of small files because of the way you can mod the game. And it turned out that didn't work so well over the network because of the latency.
1: The big concern that I have with this stuff potentially is I I really don't like the idea that game developers might start trying to test to see if you've got an SSD and just like refuse if they don't like what they see, because there's a lot of things that game developers are absolutely not going to plan for. And, you know, Alan's talking about an array of rust drives that might or might not be appropriate in part because rust and in part because they're on the other end of the network. But like on my own system, I'm not installing to an SSD. Even if I install it locally, it's going on to a Z pool of very fast SSDs. But what are the freaking odds that, you know, some random windows game developer has planned on the idea of like, what happens if they're little check to see what kind of storage hardware you have turns out to be a Z-pool of multiple SSDs on a Linux box. I find it hard to believe they're going to get that right. Yeah, and back when there
2: was the 32-bit version of Steam, it couldn't understand the amount of free space that my game drive had because it was an array of hard drives. And so I literally had to set a quota on that data set so the share would show up with only like 800 gigs of free space, not 29 terabytes because the 32-bit Would truncate it and it thought it had negative two gigs of free space or something.
0: But the key thing here is what exactly does that minimum specification mean? Does it mean that they're gonna check for it and just refuse to run? Or does it mean they're just not gonna support you and
2: you know, say your mileage may vary? Yeah. So for example, the Cyberpunk 2077 says that they will stop testing the game on hard drives and discontinue active support and testing the game if it's based on hard drives, but they're not going to stop people from trying to launch the game. But to Jim's concern, somebody eventually is going to decide to have a check and the check is never going to be perfect. And that's a bad thing. Plus, thing we don't think about now, but what about people trying to launch this game 10 years from now when the hard drives, Mm -hmm. you know, whatever we have, you know, non-volatile crystal memory or something doesn't look anything like what the game expects to look for. Are we going to have to, you know, run it in whatever the future version of DOSBox is that make your computer look like it's one from the 2020s?
1: Yes, we'll just be better at it by then because we'll be more accustomed to the concepts of virtual machines and containerization and encapsulating things. And we're not everywhere that we need to be for that yet, but moving forward into the future, yes, things will get much better for backwards compatibility in that sense, especially non-security sensitive stuff, you know, like games, particularly local games, because yeah, that's exactly the way they'll get handled you're going to know, no, I'm not installing this directly on my machine. I'm going to spin up a quick VM dedicated to exactly this, and that's how I'll experience it.
2: But in general, just seeing the hit versus miss rate on old games working on my computer, it's just disheartening to see how frequently there's just some weird thing that means it doesn't work. Like My favorite sub game doesn't work because it tries to use 16-bit color, and that's not supported anymore.
0: Let's do some free consulting then. But first, just a quick thank you to everyone who supports us with PayPal and Patreon. We really do appreciate that. If you want to join those people, you can go to 2.5admins.com slash support. And remember, for $5 or more per month on Patreon, you can get an advert-free RSS feed. And if you want to send in your questions for Jim and Alan or your feedback, you can email show at 2.5admins.com. Ben writes, following up on the Veeam VMware discussion, what is a solid enterprise alternative to VMware for pooling hosts? We use KVM at work on single machines, and I know Versch can live migrate VMs, but I'm uncertain of a robust open solution to create and manage VM clusters. We have some overt, but the project's future is murky. Proxmox is popular with home labbers, but is it actually being used in prod in the enterprise? VMware is the safe default choice. Is there a worthy competitor?
1: Proxmox is absolutely used in the enterprise, not just in home labs. Now I'll grant you, it does largely find its way there because people have used it to good effect in their home labs, so they bring it into work with them. But you know, that tends to be how a lot of technologies get adopted. I think it's probably a worthwhile analogy for a lot of folks to think of Proxmox is to virtual machines basically as TrueNAS is to network-attached storage systems. It is a very widely used distribution. There are free and decidedly non-free versions, and yes, they genuinely do get used in enterprise. Now, with that said, again, I'm not a Proxmox user. I don't have a ton of direct experience with it. I do know that Proxmox can manage VM clusters, but that is the extent of my knowledge about it. I have not tried to use it in anger myself for anything that matters. I am fully 100% KVM and vert manager for my own production needs.
0: What about on the FreeBSD side with Beehive? Is that anywhere near VMware in terms of abstraction layers and management and stuff, or is it more towards the KVM side, which is more kind of uh, hands-on?
2: Yeah, it's just the hypervisor. There's a couple of projects to try to build tooling around it, but even those are mostly focused on more of the single-node type setups. To do something fully VMware like you need a lot of extra infrastructure as well you need the storage to be separate from the VMs and accessible from all of the compute hosts and that's generally a much different setup than what you see you know even Proxmox is well it can do it it's mostly focused on the idea of the storage is on the same machine as as the VM because that's the use case more people have versus the enterprise one where you're trying to do something bigger or you know if you're trying to emulate a, a private cloud by having a lot of compute and then connected to, again, separate storage and doing it that way. What about OpenStack? Isn't that supposed to be
1: something like this? I think probably the best answer to that is OpenStack can be a great solution for this as long as you have a large team of developers to implement it for you. OpenStack is not an install it and use it ready to go platform. It's basically a build your hosting management platform toolkit.
0: So it's all there if you're willing to put the work in, but it's not a polished product like VMware and Veeam.
1: Exactly. It's kind of like trying to, there are a few open source solutions like that. Like uh, if you've ever tried to look for a, uh, a Foss alternative to QuickBooks, you come across, I think it's GNU Cache. And like, it looks good at first, but then you start reading the documentation and it talks about, you know, what tasks to give which parts of your team of developers when you're setting it up. And like, oh, oh, okay. I, I see what we're doing here. So OpenStack's a lot like that. You need a pretty large fleet of real bare metal hardware, even just to do like a toy deployment of it. And uh, then once done, again, it's not a just done, as in you just follow the steps and now you've installed OpenStack. You're supposed to throw developers at integrating it into whatever you're doing. And there is no just ready to go product. At least there wasn't last time I looked at it.
0: And so this is why VMware is so huge
1: then. (laughs) That's why VMware and Proxmox both are so huge in their respective circles, because they're both doing the same thing, one on the proprietary side and one on the free and open source side is saying, hey, we took on this really large, really unpleasant task of gluing all this stuff together into one single product you can just install and use, and having actually done that... (laughs) People are willing to, you know, step in a lot of gopher holes (laughs) in the process of using it because it's the only option for that.
0: Okay, this episode is sponsored by Linode. Go to linode.com slash 25a, support the show, and get $100 free credit. From their award-winning support, offered 24-7, 365 to every level of user, to ease of use and setup, it's clear why developers have been trusting Linode for projects both big and small since 2003. Deploy your entire application stack with Linode's one-click app marketplace or build it all from scratch and manage everything yourself with supported centralized tools like Terraform. And check out their managed MySQL, Postgres and MongoDB databases that allow you to quickly deploy a new database and defer management tasks like configuration, managing high availability, disaster recovery, backups and data replication. Simple and fast to deploy with secure access, their flexible plans include daily backups. So go to linode.com slash 25a, create a free account and you get $100 in credit and support the show. That's linode.com slash 25a. Simon says, do you use any tools to automatically validate backups? I use healthchecks.io to get alarms if they've not run, but that's not checking content. Is writing a file with known content, say a timestamp, having that backed up, and then a different tool going into the backup to read that file, a poor man's good enough solution in your book?
1: No, it is not. Uh, The technique that you're describing is uh, called a canary file, and it is better than nothing in that a canary file is a good indication that your backup routine did run and at least managed to contact the target. But as you already said, it doesn't tell you anything about the validity of the backup run itself. You might have not succeeded in backing up anything but your canary file, You might have had a whole backup run, but you had consistency issues. There might be corruption. There's just any number of things that's not going to help you with. To the surprise of everyone listening to this show, my big recommendation here is going to be use ZFS. Because if you're using ZFS and your backup strategy involves ZFS replication, which is snapshot based, it solves lots of problems. You don't have time consistency issues like you do with something like rsync because you're not Getting a big splayed time span during which files are being copied. It's all based on a snapshot that was taken at one atomic instant in time and encompasses the entire condition of your storage at that time. So you don't have consistency issues because every block is checksummed per block on both source and target. You don't have to worry about on disk corruption issues because you're running automated scrubs that read every single block on the drive and validate it against its hash regularly, you know, by default on both source and target. You also don't have to worry about your backups becoming corrupt on the target. So now all you have to do is you have to see when's the newest snapshot that has showed up on the target. If you see that snapshot show up in ZFS list T snap, well... You had a good backup because if your backup got interrupted halfway through, you won't see that snapshot in ZFS list. Even if you've got send and resume support, it's, it doesn't show up in ZFS list. It shows up as a token elsewhere you can go look for. So this just makes the whole thing stupidly easy. You don't worry about checking to see if the backup job ran You only check to see what is the most recent backup I actually have on my target. That's all you really need to know. So I don't do any kind of monitoring about, you know, did my backup job fire off? All I'm doing is I've got automated tools. uh, Well, my automated tool actually is called Sanoid. One way or another, whether Nagios does it or whether you shell into your machine manually to do it, I, you know, run Sanoid dash dash monitor dash snapshots. And it tells me whether or not the most recent snapshots on that system are fresh according to the policy I have to find, which is usually going to be something along the lines of, I should have a daily no more than two days old. I should have a monthly no more than 35 days old. You know, you get the idea. So if you don't have a snapshot that fits that criteria, then your backups aren't running properly, and it's easy to spot and you address it. If you have to do non-ZFS backups for stuff,
2: any good backup software should have an operation called a verify, which is effectively do a restore except for instead of overwriting the files on the destination we just compare what we would have written to what's there and it tells you any files that are different than what was backed up doesn't help with the consistency issues because you know if the file has changed since the backup you can't tell whether it didn't get backed up properly or it's just newer than the backup but it does allow you to at least tell does what got backed up match what's on the system now And if you can stop the system from changing while you do the verify, it can make it a little less of a problem. But yeah, ZFS is magic and solves all the problems. But if you don't, any good backup software should support a verify operation to make sure what got backed up matches what's actually on the system and that things didn't get missed.
1: Of course, that's assuming you can actually afford both the time and the storage load to do a full verify of your gigantic conventional backup, you know, which basically boils down to a tar ball, whether it actually uses tar or not. Even on a typical small business system, I mean, that can easily take like six to eight hours every time you freaking do it. Whereas ZFS list dash T snap and look at what's the most recent. You can do that in literally one second. Yep. And like Jim was saying, it also uses up a lot of
2: resources on the system. It means it slows the system being backed up or verified and the backup system down while it's doing it. And it doesn't help. If there was a configuration issue, I mean, this file didn't get back up, well, the verify is not going to notice that a file you hold it not to back up didn't get backed up. And so then, like any backup system, the only way you know it works is when you do a restore. So you're doing test restores every quarter or so, right, to make sure your backup actually is restorable. Because, you know, nobody wants a backup. Everybody wants a restore that works. It doesn't matter if the backup worked or not. Does the restore work? And so that's the real test is not any of these tools or a verified job of literally do a restore and did everything come out okay? And, you know, will I be able to perform this at three in the morning?
0: Right, well, we better get out of here then. Remember, show at 2.5admins.com if you want to send any questions or
1: your feedback. You can find me at jores.com slash mastodon. You can find me at jrs snet slash social. And I'm at Alan Jude. We'll see you next week.